Colossians chapter 2, verses to 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. I want you to imagine with me this morning uh, this scenario. A Christian man who attends church, reads his Bible every so often, whose job is pretty good but could be better, whose marriage is okay, but could be better, whose kids are doing well, but could be better, and is just trying to improve his life. He watches television, where an intelligible, sensible guest on a CNN or a BBC program speaks about his life story and trying a whole bunch of things That didn't work necessarily for his life, but until he found something that did work. Around the same time, a co-worker in his office shares how her job has gotten better, having thought through how she could maximize her bottom line, her results. Even if it meant ignoring instructions her boss had explicitly given her about taking care of all clients, but whatever works. It's her rationale. So this man, he begins to see, but also believe some of the wisdom of this little life philosophy, whatever works. And since this life philosophy is more tangible, more results-oriented than what he has learned about Jesus from the Bible, from Sunday school he decides not to compare his findings with Scripture. After all, he reasons, God wants me to improve my life. So, learning Christ, belief in Christ as God, right, as the number one in his life, starts to drift a little away from shore. So he begins to take this new philosophy for a test drive. He gets the kids for a weekend while his wife's away and they take advantage of him mercilessly. Until he learns a trick, he begins to reward them a dollar a day for their good behavior. Whatever works. So the next day, he begins to remind them at the beginning and throughout the day about that dollar as a motivator for behavior. Wanting to improve his marriage, he asks his wife, again in the spirit of whatever works, what what do you want? What she wants. And he expresses what he wants and they compromise. Within reason, he will give her some essentials as long as it is reciprocal and he gets some essentials for himself. Not necessarily a marriage based on the gospel principle in Ephesians 5 of mutual sacrifice no matter what as a response to Christ's sacrifice, but again, whatever works. 
all of a sudden, he has started to build for himself a life system in which he derives a sense of accomplishment, satisfaction, pleasure from fixing things and achieving results in his life. He has a mental checklist. If he accomplishes these things, if things go well, he feels that sense of satisfaction, that sense of self-worth. Now, if and when pressed, he would never say that he loves his new system more than he loves God, but everyone shows what and who they love by what they prioritize. So he's got this system, but gradually, over time, his system starts to sputter. His kids want more money, right? They're not satisfied with what they have. They more money, but less relationship from him. His wife grows unsatisfied with the deal, right? She increasingly questions whether his heart is really in it. The nonprofit accountant account that he largely neglected in order to produce a better bottom line. Well, that nonprofit reaches out to his boss, who is now malcontent with his lack of service. Furthermore, the satisfaction he felt is experienced by others around him as a, like a smugness. There's a pride, there's a judgmental attitude present now in his life. In other words, his life system stops working. When something a person has built their life on stops working, they have two general choices. They can search for the truth with the hope of clinging to it, or they can start another life. A second life of secret indulgence. And he elects the latter. He rationalizes, look, I'm just taking a break from all this. Specifically, he's taking a break from God. He stops attending church. That's replaced by people at the club scene or the local pub. Stops attending to prayer to his wife and kids, and that's replaced by attending to sort of secret drinking, secret indulging in online Images, pornography even. Sort of secretly sparking up conversations, playful conversations with that same woman at work who gave that half-truth kind of advice. He's replaced sharing anything about his faith with sharing what he thinks people want to hear. Right? Kind of surly jokes, edgy put-downs, exaggerated stories, that kind of stuff. Instead of working as unto the Lord, that is replaced by doing just enough at work to get by. So he can have more time for his secret indulgence. In fact, he even spends time at work indulging in some of those things. Short story. But I think you'll agree that you don't have to let your imagination run wild. You don't have to run wild on the imagination playground. Right? astray too far with this scenario. I mean, it's, it's on that playground. I mean, it's underneath the slide in the jungle gym in that shady area where the kids are always hanging out doing something. <laughs> right, it's there. 
I think it's not uncommon at all to see this snowball effect of deception happen in regular people's lives. People who claim religiosity, spirituality, even in ourselves. And not only that, I think it spans generations of time. This isn't just a modern problem. In fact, I'm fairly certain it does because it's the kind of progressive deception that the Apostle Paul addresses in this church at Colossae. Three degrees of deception. And there's some in this church in Colossae who've been deceived in the first degree. Good advice from a good source is like good news from the source. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. and talked about it as being like Facebook advice. Sounds good. In fact, Paul, in chapter 2, verse 8, calls it even plausible. It sounds plausible. But if you keep on listening and just absorbing these half-truths without getting to better know and learn Christ, then you'll start to build your life around, well, that makes sense. And then you, as you build your life around that, that progresses into second-degree deception. Once it works, I make it into a system, a way of living. If you don't fight your love of your system with the love of Christ, the former will start to take priority. Just dominate your life. Until surprise, that system breaks down. As all systems made by man do. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2.23. These kinds of systems have indeed an appearance of wisdom they appear to be wise in promoting self-made religion. Asceticism, severity of the body. But guess what? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you think they're going to help your heart, but your heart keeps indulging in something that's dead and empty and provides no real satisfaction. They're faced with one system, one self-made religion breaking down they're faced with a, a basic choice, which is this. You know, A, you could reach out and hold on to the source who brings gradual but genuine growth. And we see this, right? Verse 19, the verse we read this morning, you could, you could hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished, knit together through its joints and its ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Now when people grow when you're a toddler, when you're a young person, a teenager, and you grow, it's a gradual growth. Yeah, you might get a growth spurt. But in general, those joints, those ligaments grow over time. And not just that, it's the whole body. You know, the right arm doesn't grow out of proportion to the left. But not just that, the whole body grows. Meaning, when you grow and you cling to the head which is Christ, it's not just you who's clinging, it's the rest of the body of Christ. Notice that. So both the fact that that growth is gradual and it's with other people make it feel slow, can make it feel awkward, but that growth is genuine, as Paul says, it's growth from God. So you could reach out to that choice or you could reach out to just taking a break. You could just take a break from God. As verse 18 describes in some detail, 
You get in some lurid, secret sin. That's the third degree of deception. Taking a break from God. I want to break this down a little bit for us. You're deceived. But how specifically are you deceived? First of all, you're deceived into thinking, I'm just taking a break from things. I'm just taking a break from all that stuff. But really, you're taking a break from God. No one is ever... To save face. To keep our eternal security sure. We're never, no one's ever going to say, I'm taking a break from God. They might say, I'm, maybe say, I'm, I'm taking a break from church. All right, but if you combine that with prayer, with reading God's Word, with worship, etc., what they really mean is, I'm taking a break from the biblical, historical disciplines that are a doorway to communion with God. These things are, don't do anything of themselves, but they are doorways where something can be done, where you can commune with God. I'm going to take a break from those things. And even if they don't go there, they might say, well, I'm just having a little fun. Right? I'm just having some fun. Or I'm just doing my own thing now. And seriously, who has ever emerged from doing my own thing? Who has ever emerged from a season of life of taking a break from church grateful for that season of life? Oh man, I'm so glad. Before God, I am so glad that I just did my own thing. I took a break from church, from fellowship. And at most, even in that maybe 1% of persons who have emerged unscathed, back in fellowship in a healthy place with God, even they cautiously say they see maybe how they needed it, but also how they missed out when they took that break. Maybe you know that feeling. I've known that feeling. It's deception. Taking a break just from things. Now, taking a break from God. The other part of that deception is that taking a break is harmless or it's neutral. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's certainly not going to hurt me. But you cannot take a break from one thing without replacing it with another. In Romans 1, Paul affirms that we are worshiping beings. You are made to worship, as a famous worship song says. You and I are made to worship. We're called to love. But you can fill in the blank as to what you worship or you love. We're all made to do that. If you take one thing one person, one activity, one pursuit out will always replace it with something else. In other words, there's no neutral here. Human beings don't do neutral really well. You know? You and I, we don't take a break from God's. We exchange them. Like a timeshare. You just turn in one for something else. We will indulge in something else. And it doesn't have to be like in the scenario I described, you know, uh, sexual sin, alcohol, these sorts of things we think of as these obvious, conspicuous kinds of deeds. It could be just a secret replacement of God with something else, binging on food. It could be on the opposite end of the spectrum, one's body, right? Indulging in exercise, an image. It could be a secret. Virtual web life. Not mean, you, you know, it might be creating avatars and I don't know what that is. But it just, well, web is your life and you're a different person on it. 
could be a codependent relationship with somebody else. You're taking a break from God to attach yourself to someone else and get your identity and your meaning from them. Whatever it is, taking a break is never harmless or neutral. Finally, what are the dangers of taking this kind of break? Paul gives us some hints here in verse 18. First of all, the dangers to ourselves, it brings in the possibility of disqualification. Sounds like a bad word, doesn't it? No one, no one wants to work hard. No one wants to invest themselves only to be disqualified. Notice the contrast between first degree deception where Paul warns earlier here in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in some of these questions. In other words, Paul's saying, look, don't let anyone judge for you these truths about who you are and who Christ is. But specifically in the choices you make in your life, bring those judgments to Christ and let Him make them. But don't let anyone else pass that judgment on you lest you put your identity in these kind of weird checklist kind of things. But notice the contrast. Let no one pass judgment on you. And here, third degree deception, let no one, same language, right? Same words. Let no one disqualify you. That sounds much worse. One thing for someone to kind of judge us on the outside Give us the stink eye, right? It's another thing to be disqualified. This word disqualification comes from the Greek root word bra beuo, which has the sense of to act as an umpire. To act like as a referee. In other words, someone who can withhold a prize from you. A trophy. Going down this road just taking a break from God can get you tossed out of the game. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? No. If you want more information on that, listen to the sermon on February 26th from Colossians. But what I will say is going down this road might reveal that your salvation wasn't in fact genuine. So just don't go down it. Secondly, another danger of taking a break is that this kind of deception enslaves. Right? Paul talks about here as an insistence. They're going to insist that you live this way instead of another way. When you begin to live a life of secret indulgence, that life and all that that life entails is an enslaving lifestyle. You won't tell yourself that. You'll say, I'm being free. I'm acting on my own. But over time, are you really free? In fact, others will begin to reinforce and insist that that's the right way to live. And you tacitly assume, I I, I must have these things. Even if you're not satisfied with them any longer. Even with the fact that that lifestyle is now stale to you. But... People insist on it. It makes sense. You ever been there before? You're, you're living something you know it's not satisfying, but you're just assuming this is the way I'm supposed to live. This is the way it's supposed to be. You're so enslaved by it. There is a spiritual thing going on there. For the third degree, 
deceived Colossians, for them it was preventing the body from certain common foods while indulging in others. Do what was called asceticism. But it also involved for them the worship of created things rather than the Creator, which leads to the third danger of just taking a break. That deception, its deceptive grip grows stronger because it often maintains just a hint, just a hint of spirituality. Enough to make it seem spiritual. So you get here for the Colossians, angels, the worship of angels. Oh, angels are pretty good, right? They're in the Bible, uh, but they're not God. They're still created things. And he also talks about this idea of being puffed up without reason by a sensual mind, going into detail about visions, without getting into the nitty-gritty of what this was historically in Colossae. Essentially, it was extra-spiritual experiences that a typical Christian doesn't experience. Maybe he doesn't know enough to experience. You know, so it's extra-spiritual even. And you hear this sort of thing, you know, in life where you hear my, people might say, man, I worship God in my own way. You ever heard that? I, just, I worship God in my own way. And that might be anything from staying away from Christians but doing a good deed every day. To, you know, sometimes I think it might be watching people just do church on TV. That's how I'm going to do it. And man, let me tell you, there's a lot of junk in that trunk. When you turn on the tube. I mean, so, so much of it, I can say all of it, but so much of it is based on telling people what they want to hear. Stroking them and telling them, basically, you're doing pretty well, but the issue is, you just haven't got that more fulfilling experience. I can promise you that more fulfilling experience, that extra experience, that extra things that most Christians don't get. And so oftentimes, they're actually reinforcing third-degree deception. Things are okay. I'm loving what I want to do. I'm worshiping God in my own way. Even getting something extra that a lot of Christians don't get. How do you guard against this? It's dangerous. It's real. It happens. It's not too far-fetched. So how do you guard against being third-degree deceived? And this is the most important thing this morning. You replace those potential secret indulgences with living Christ, where we fellowship, where we live, where we work, and where we play. Think about it. In all these areas of life, you could maintain a belief in in the doctrines of Christianity that Jesus died a substitutionary death for my sin. I know that. You can believe those things, but it's dead in your life. You you can even have certain inclinations or feelings, but no one would see those by how you live. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the more often a person feels, and I would add, believes, the more often a person feels without acting, the less he will be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. you stop living Christ, you start to grow numb, get hardened. So we're going to start thinking about how we can prevent being deceived, how we can 
prevent this deception in our own life by evaluating how you and I live our lives against living Christ as Paul describes it in the final chapter and a half of Colossians. It's going to do over the coming weeks. We're going to start by evaluating our own lives against this and get some great practical wisdom on how to live Christ. In fact, Paul sets up living Christ perfectly here as an antidote to the deception. After you go to church, you can secretly live an indulgent lifestyle away from the Christian scene. You can be someone different around your family, someone different at your workplace, someone different where you hang out. In other words, you can escape detection of someone different where you live, where you work, where you play. And it's kind of cool because that's the order over the next few weeks that Paul takes us in challenging us. Do you really believe in Christ? Do you really love Christ? And you will live Christ. Where you fellowship, but also where you live where you work, and where you play. How do we do that? Well, I'm more prepared this morning, but we have an elder church chat to get to at the end of our service. So I'm going to close with this. In 1972, a young Egyptian man named Farahat lost an $11,000 watch. <laughs> Can you begin to imagine that? $11,000. I mean, I, lost my, I left my watch behind on the beach a few weeks ago. And I was nervous because it cost, I think it cost like $110, and I splurged. And this is going to be like the watch I would have for the rest of my life. <laughs> I got that on sale. And thankfully, the guy gave it back to me. It was great. $11,000 watch. He was stunned. And this is in 1972, by the way. All right, so you do the math on inflation. But he was stunned when a garbage man dressed in filthy rags found it and returned it to him. Farahat asked him why he didn't just keep the watch. To which the garbage man replied, my Christ told me to be honest until death. Farahat later told a reporter, I didn't know Christ at the time. But I told the garbage man that I saw whoever Christ was in him. And so I told him, because of what you've done, and your great example, I want to worship this Christ you are worshiping. Farhat studied the Bible. And then he began to grow in his trust in Christ. Two years later, he visited that garbage man's village outside Cairo, where between fifteen and 30,000 people lived in poverty and squalor and no electricity, no running water. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, all rampant. Adults and children alike all sifted through huge mountains of garbage where they often lived, looking for something of value that could be sold for cash or traded for food. Bear Hat, taking all this in, found himself reflecting on the words of Jesus. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He read in Luke. He also recalled the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. We have become as the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things. And soon thereafter, Farahat and his wife started ministering to the people's spiritual and material needs there. They preached the gospel then throughout Egypt and actually were part of seeing thousands of people come to trust Christ 
1978, Farah Hat was ordained by the Coptic Orthodox Church, which incidentally celebrates Easter today. And he became known as Father Samaan. Now 10,000 10, believers meet in a large cave to worship Christ outside at Garbage Village. It's considered the largest church of believers in the Middle East. All this because one garbage man chose to live the Christ in whom he trusted. Instead of secretly indulging in a second life that would have made him the richest man in town. Let's pray. Father, help our lives match our beliefs. And where it doesn't, we are also grateful to Jesus because he died for that too. He died for your run-of-the-mill hypocrisy as well. And so this morning even, we, where we've fallen short in our actions, our lives matching our beliefs, Jesus, we ask for your forgiveness, knowing that through Jesus Christ, we are fully forgiven. Through trust in him as our God and trust that he fully and freely forgives, we are forgiven and set free from that. And we ask that would be the motivator to start to live these kinds of lives. And Father, also pray, we, for a lot of us here this morning, this doesn't apply to us because we're here this morning. Uh, people who are often taking a break, they're taking a break from church as well. Father, help us know how to minister and love such people. First of all, in the spirit of knowing that we are saved by grace. There is no great thing about Christianity is it removes that superior element because we're saved by nothing else but a gift, not anything we've done. We have been there too, deceived. Titus 3 talks about deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, but the kindness of God our Savior appears and that's He saved us not because of anything we've done, but because of His mercy. And in that spirit, Help us love our friends, those we love who are under the sway of third-degree deception. Help us love and pray for those who don't want our help, who are living a life and they think it's secret, but we can see it. And we just want to love them. Just help us love them well. Help us pray for them well. And for those of us who kind of let us in the door, Father, give us an opportunity to be bold. You know, like Nathan with King David who waited for the right time but also was bold enough to step through that door and say, David, you are that man. It's been nine months since you killed a man and had sex with his wife. You are that man. He risked his life doing that. We can at least risk our reputation. Help us be bold when the moment comes. And Father, when the moment comes, also help us not moralize with such a person, but show grace. Morality, telling them, well, you should live a life like mine. I'm a good person. Here's what I do. We are probably deceived. <laughs> Help us share the grace of Jesus Christ, which alone can bring someone out of that deception. That they see the worth of knowing Jesus, knowing they are eternally loved, and coming back to him. 
I guess what we're saying, Jesus, is we need your help for that. So we pray and lay these things at your feet, confident that you hear us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.